Father, we, this morning, as we desire to hear from you, from your word, that you would speak clearly and loudly, and we would desire that the Holy Spirit would illumine our our, our thoughts and our minds to understand what you have communicated, that we may be better prepared to go into a dark world and minister for you. And uh, we also pray for all the unspoken prayers and the things and the needs that, that everyone has that you know. Uh, we don't even have to express them, but you you know about them, so we praise you for that. And we just commit them to you. We desire to be in fellowship with you. If there's anything hindering that, that we would confess that and that we would, in fact, focus on you and what you have communicated. So, Lord, as we get into your word, we want to submit to your will and to uh, allow it to shape us and conform us to your image. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Today, we will continue in our study of the book of Romans. And uh, one of the focuses of the passage we looked at last week, very familiar, in fact, almost too familiar, so familiar that I think lots of people, and I think even our group, missed, I think, some of the elements that I think Paul gives in uh, verses 9 and 10. Some of you have memorized it. In fact, most of you probably have memorized those two verses and have used them, and God has probably used them. I introduced it last week using Billy Graham as an example. He's probably one of the main ones that has made that passage so familiar, and in that, sometimes we miss some of the elements that are also in that passage. And just by way of introduction and reminder, uh, Romans 10 9 and 10, does present a gospel message. There is a simple gospel message that I think all of us should be familiar with, but I think that passage is an example, and one way we can apply it personally, we should all share the gospel, but the gospel in each and every situation You don't change the gospel, but you adapt elements of it depending on your audience and depending on who you're sharing with. And for example, if you're sharing to somebody that's a churchgoer and thinks they're spiritual, thinks they're born again already, but really are not, in fact, they've demonstrated themselves to be an unbeliever, you'll spend more time trying to convince them of the need for salvation and you'll show them that good works are or nothing before God, etc. So you adapt how you present the gospel depending on the audience. If you happen to come across somebody that is burdened with their sin and overwhelmed with it and are crying out for God's mercy, and you don't have to convince them of their sin. So you don't spend that much time trying to develop the concept of separation. They, they sense it. They know it. You can go right into the good news of what Christ has done. Similarly, Romans 9 and 10, in the context, what Paul, I think, is doing, he's not giving two conditions for salvation, belief and confessing. We kind of looked at that in some detail. Justification is by faith and faith alone. But to the audience, and hopefully we developed the audience 
that lived in the city of Rome, and in Rome there were Jewish believers, and I think what he's doing is he's giving them something of the gospel message and adapting it to a Jewish audience. We brought out some of those Jewish elements, and I'll review some of those real quickly, but the emphasis is this is what a Jewish audience would be helpful in in that context in most situations, perhaps, maybe not every situation, but particularly those elements that Paul brings out. And remember, he's speaking to both Jew and Gentile in the church at Rome or the many churches at Rome. And in that, he he is dealing with justification by faith or God's provision of God's righteousness broadly to any audience, chapters one through eight. We spend lots of time there. And now he's kind of adapting or explaining how the, the nation of Israel fits in to this overall gospel message. And he's vindicating God's righteousness because we know in that, even though God has sovereignly chosen Israel, and he reviews a little bit of that, and we emphasized sovereign election in that passage, God has temporarily rejected Israel. So there's there's a rejection or a discipline. Israel is under discipline. So he's explaining the situation in the first century so that not only Jews but Gentiles will understand what God is doing in this time frame, the beginning of the church age that Paul is addressing, and we're living perhaps at the end of the church age, what God is doing with Israel. But he does not teach. In fact, he teaches against replacement theology. We've stressed that a little bit. Because God, yes, has temporarily set Israel aside in that sense of rejection. And Israel is under discipline. And in chapter 10, and actually the last part of chapter 9, 930 through the end of chapter 10, he's explaining from uh, the human perspective, human responsibility. So he stresses sovereign choice or sovereign election from God's perspective, chapter 9, chapter 930 through chapter 10, 21, from the human perspective. He's talking about the reasons why Israel is rejected and it falls in their lap. But it's not a permanent rejection. They will be restored. So there's a restoration. That's chapter 11. And all of Israel shall be saved. So in chapter 10, the passage that we're talking about is in some ways introductory, you might say, in that it is explaining what Jewish people need to understand in order to follow through on what God will do ultimately in saving all of Israel. So we'll get into that passage when we get there. So the context is Israel as God's chosen people. And what would immediately enter the mind of the Jewish person is, Paul, you're talking about a gospel that includes Gentiles on an equal basis with Jews? That's not, that's not a biblical gospel. That's not something that you uh, can find uh, in the Old Testament. At least that was the impression they had. Israel is God's chosen people. They are the ones that God has blessed and is bestowing his grace and salvation. So Israel's God's chosen people. What is this gospel that you're proclaiming that goes out to the Gentiles? It's probably not a biblical gospel. 
So what Paul is doing in chapter 10 primarily and specifically 9 and 10, those two verses, he's explaining the gospel in terms of its broadest sense that includes Gentiles. And we're going to see more of that as we move through the passage. This gospel is, in fact, predicted in the Old Testament. And the heart of God is such that whoever believes, he's going to take a little phrase from the Old Testament to emphasize the universality of the gospel message that it goes out not just to the Jews, but also the Gentiles. And he's going to explain that because Israel has rejected that gospel message, they are set aside, and he's giving the reasons for that in chapter 10. But righteousness is still available to anyone, Jew or Gentile. And as we've gone through this outline, this is just simply an an expansion of the chart I just showed you, the outline, where he's dealt with the past sovereign election of Israel, 9 through 9, 1 through 29. And now he's focusing on the present national rejection, the nation, not individual Jews, because there were individual Jews that received the Messiah, but nationally they are set aside. So there's a national re- rejection, 930 through the end of chapter 10. And there are several parts that we've already looked at. We're concluding the part that deals with the main reason Israel is set aside is they have perverted the way to receiving God's righteousness, or I call that perversion in attaining righteousness. That's 9.30 through 10.13. We'll get hopefully that far this morning. They pursued a righteousness but they stumbled over the stumbling stone. So he takes them to the Old Testament and they have a problem in accessing it because they don't understand the essence of who God is, a problem in perceiving a righteous God. They've lowered him to their standards and are setting about a righteousness on their own terms, verses one through four. And in the larger paragraph we're looking at, they have, a, they have a problem in accessing that righteousness, 5 through 13. And what we focused on last week was the issue of believing the gospel that Paul has presented. But that gospel is available, or that righteousness is available, 5 through 8. And we looked at accessing that word of faith, 9 through 10, last time. And we developed the Jewish context of the passage, the Jewish context of the whole subdivision, 9 through 11. He mentions in chapter 10, salvation. And remember, we made a distinction on the word soteria and the verb form sozo. And in verse 10, he refers to salvation. And I think he makes a distinction in what he's talking about. He's talked about justification by faith, dikaiao, and we spent lots of time developing that through the chapters that we've looked at, and I think Paul is consistent when he uses dikaiao, he's talking about that initial trust, that initial stage of salvation in 10.1 to a Jewish audience. I think he's looking at it in a more comprehensive sense. I abbreviate it to fit it on the slide there. Jewish comprehensive salvation that he's developing in this passage that includes many aspects of it. 
So 10-1, when he begins to talk about it, I think he's using it not in terms of trusting in Christ to escape hell or eternal destiny, but more in a broad sense. And I'll review a little bit of that again today. This message is near. So he goes to Deuteronomy, the word of God and the access to God was near in the time of Moses as he prepares the children of Israel. We reviewed Deuteronomy 30. In fact, we went all the way to chapter 28. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That comes out of Deuteronomy. That is the word of faith. And he's reviewing here a little bit of what Deuteronomy is bringing out. Verse 9, what if you confess with your mouth? In other words, he's taking the order that you find in Deuteronomy. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And I stressed, this is not lordship salvation. A Jewish audience needs to recognize Jesus as Yahweh, Jesus as God himself. They rejected Jesus as Messiah. They rejected him as Lord. They rejected him as God himself. And in fact, were participants in crucifying him. So an essential element of the gospel message to a Jewish audience needs to focus on the deity of Christ. We stressed that last time. So if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, believing in your heart, there's the content of the gospel message that he stresses to a Jewish audience that Jesus that died on the cross, and you focus on not only the deity, but the death and the resurrection, the Jewish audience needed to hear that. Raised from the dead, you will be saved. Now he's using uh, sozo there. And I think, again, we developed the idea. It has more than the idea of escape from hell. And I gave you kind of a review of a word study there. For with the heart, a person believes. In other words, it's an internal Belief, that's the gospel, resulting in, there's the word that the verbal form is the idea of justification. Uh, We have resulting in the noun form, dikaiasune, resulting in righteousness. That's initial entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's salvation in its first initial aspects of it. That's as a result of believing A second condition is not confessing. We talked about that. And with the mouth, he confesses. So once one believes out in public, it's important for a Jew to take a stand for for Jesus. And that will result in deliverance. That's probably the best way to explain the word salvation there. So we talked a lot about that last time. I'm not going to go over all of it again. So confessing. The natural course would be for a Jew to acknowledge Jesus as Lord or as God himself or as Messiah. He's going to get thrown out of the synagogue. He's going to be thrown out of the family. He's going to be ostracized. And God can use that. I'm not saying that this would happen in every case, but uh, I think in this Jewish context, Paul is aware that because the nation has rejected the Messiah, The scriptures teach, we're going to look at some of those in these following passages. Scriptures teach, particularly the Joel passage, one of the last ones that he'll use in this section, is talking about Israel going through judgment, going through tribulation before they call upon the Lord. 
from Paul's perspective, he had no idea that there would be 2,000 years of church age. He anticipated that there would come a judgment. He didn't know the specific date of 70 AD, and he didn't know the details, but he knew the scriptures and knew that there was coming a judgment, and a Jew that would be in that culture and trust in Jesus Christ would uh, need to confess Jesus, not for salvation, but for, you might say, the next stage in his growth. And that would take probably some severe reactions. And that might be a means by which uh, those Jews would be separated from the general judgment that would be coming in 70 AD. So we developed some of these things last time, resulting in salvation, same word there, resulting in righteousness, that's justification, resulting in salvation, probably deliverance from the coming wrath of God. Deliverance, so it's looking at another aspect in terms of the concept of deliverance, not salvation from hell. Now, as we said last time, you probably didn't hear you probably haven't heard that, so that's why we've kind of stressed it and looked at it. Just a little bit more of the review here, and then we'll get into the passage. If you remember, we talked about, uh, here's the two Greek words, primary terms, soteria, the noun form. That's where we get the theology, soteriology. Do you see where you get that from the noun form? Curse 45 times in the New Testament. Sozo, the verb form, 106 times. So it's a frequent New Testament word, noun form, verb form. We stressed last time that there's several, and by the way, probably more often than not in the Old Testament, it the word, the corresponding Hebrew word, does not refer to what you commonly think of when you hear the word salvation has nothing to do with heaven and hell, has nothing to do with eternal destiny. It primarily is used in a context of deliverance from physical danger. And so also, if you just look at the numbers, six times, the ones I've counted anyway, of the noun form are used in this physical sense. In other words, escape from physical danger. We looked at the Acts passage and the Philippians passage like last time. We won't get into them again. In terms of the verb form, I count 40 times, almost half of the usages, or over a third of the usages of the word sozo have nothing to do with eternal destiny. The context is physical danger. And I mentioned, uh, gave you a couple of examples. Many of them New American Standard, you wouldn't know that the word sozo is used because uh, there are at least 16 times when it's talking about physical healing. And sometimes it's translated getting well or made well or healed. But the word sozo is there. Now, if you were a good Baptist and you looked at the Greek word there, automatically your mind would think in terms of eternal destiny. In fact, the everyday Christian does the same thing. You think in terms of every time you see the word salvation, you immediately think, well, he's talking about eternal destiny, when in fact, most of the usages don't refer to that at all. And there's a large number that 
deal with the physical. We talked about that. Word is used theologically in three senses. We went over this. Past tense sense. Paul is very specific. He uses a different word. The dikaiosune word group or dikaios word group translated justification or to justify in the book of Romans. That's that initial past tense sense where we're saved from the penalty of sin. That is eternal destiny. That is saved from hell. But the word is only used in that way in, oh, I don't know. Uh, can't, I don't have the count here. Maybe 20 times or so. I'll have to look it up. It's also used in a future sense. Another word that is used in the New Testament to describe that future sense is glorification, where we are saved from the very presence of sin. That happens when we go to be with the Lord, either through death or rapture. And then uh, there are an equal number of occurrences in the New Testament where it refers to a present tense salvation. Another word that is used is sanctification. That's a salvation from the power of sin. And just to kind of solidify this, uh, what I tried to stress last time, every time you see the word, in fact, any word, you need to look at how that word is used in its context. And if you just think about how do we use words, we can use the same word in different contexts and have, uh, in some cases, even radically different meanings, depending on how we as the speaker are using words. Well, the Bible is written in this same way. It's, this is the way language works. So you have to look at each context. That's why we developed this Jewish context in Romans 9 or 10, 9 and 10, to be able to see how Paul possibly is using the word uh, soteria in that context or sozo. I can't, which one is it? Both of them. How he's using it. So whenever you come across any word, and in this case, the words for salvation, check the context. Now turn turn to First Peter, just to kind of solidify this. Let me give you another example. We looked at some passages where the word occurs in its non-past tense sense, in the sense of entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ. First Peter, I think we have an example where Peter uses the word perhaps in three different ways. And does anybody, is anybody turned there? First Peter chapter one, who wants to read? Chapter one, verse what? Start with three. Go ahead, Jeff. Now, before you read, he's, he does, in this context, he's not, what I'm going to show here, Peter in chapter one uses the concept of salvation in three different senses. Now, he doesn't use the word in this first sense in verse three, but but notice what he's describing here. Go ahead, Jeff. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Okay, what is he describing there? What sense of salvation? Now, he's not using the word. He's using different terminology, but what sense? Glorification. Glorification? Nah. Be born born again. Now, you're looking at the resurrection of the future hope, but the born again aspect. Maybe not bad. Past tense. Next time I won't be chiming in for (laughs) Connie. 
caused us to be born again. See that? Now that's not salvation. That's not the word, the term salvation, using a different word. But what I'm illustrating here, he's talking about a past tense sense there. Okay. Now, Connie, since you guys are there, why don't, well, you read already. Jeff, why don't you read verse five now and answer the same questions? All right, verse five, let's see. Okay. Who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. That sounds like the rapture. That sounds no, like like sanctification being kept through till the last time. No, well, I, I stuck to the last time. <laughs> For but it's a salvation ready to be revealed. It's future. So Jeff's first answer applies to verse five. But notice the word soteria is I got, there. I got to be right. Go ahead. I'm sorry. What was that? The word soteria is used there in its future tense sense for a salvation ready to be revealed. It's not there yet. Why is that future? It's ready to be. It's not present. It's not experience. It's a salvation ready to be revealed in the future, future sense. Skip down to verse nine. I'm just trying to illustrate verse three. The term doesn't occur, but the concept does. To be born again, that's initial, that's past, that's once and for all. Verse 5, a salvation ready, not yet present, ready to be revealed in a future time, future sense. Talking about glorification. Notice verse 9. Somebody read it. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. It's present. I think David's got it. Present tense. Seriously? Uh, very seriously. In fact, that little phrase, if you trace it throughout First Peter, this is a characteristic Petrine or Peter phrase. Salvation of the soul is this ongoing present tense sense. It's a day-by-day salvation, or we call that sanctification. The point I'm making is when you see the word, and here here you have salvation, verse 5, salvation, verse 9, the terms, the concept in verse 3, three different senses. So in verse 10, when he says, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you carefully... Uh, made careful search and inquiry. I think here he's kind of summarizing all three. In other words, it's this package, this comprehensive sense. That's what he's describing in verse 10. So he uses the, the term three times, and I think he's using it in three slightly different ways. Uh, one with including different wordy, worded, so you might even say the concept four times and the word three times. Uh, in verse 9, I don't know if what it is in English offhand, but it's in Spanish it is obtaining the end of your faith. So it's a, a participle, continuous, present tense, participle that we're doing all our lives, right? That's the obtaining aspect. Yes, that, no, that's the um, continuous aspect yes. of sanctification. Right? Yes, and I'm not looking at the Greek text, but it looks like it would be a participle in the Greek text as well. Okay. Yeah. Uh, in, in fact, it's actually a uh, it's a passive uh, masculine plural participle. Okay. 
passive, so it's something that God does on our behalf. It's the sanctifying process. Okay, I don't want to get too far off track here. I just wanted to give you another illustration of how, in this case, the same author in close proximity, in other words, similar context, uses the same term in different ways. So be careful when you come across the word salvation. It doesn't always automatically refer to trusting in Jesus Christ to escape or be delivered from hell. Got that? So back to our text here. We've already seen and we're stressing the human responsibility aspect here. Human responsibility. Israel's responsibility, they have failed in their pursuit of righteousness. That's 930 through 33. Another principle we developed, they failed to know the perfections of God. Chapter 10, verses 2 and 3. They failed to realize the purpose of the law, that Christ has satisfied it, and he is the end of the law, verse 4. And the stress that we've looked at last time, they fail to see the priority of faith. And I think that's the stress of six through through nine. Okay. So that brings us to the end of our little passage here. So I think the salvation that is in view at least includes what Paul anticipates is a coming judgment, a coming discipline, and the the need for a deliverance from that. And the the confessing may contribute to this deliverance of 70 AD. And I think what Paul is thinking of is not specifically any date, but he's thinking in terms of a future tribulation that is clearly spelled out in some of the Old Testament passages. So there's going to be an ultimate restoration that uh, calling on the name of Yahweh, the Lord, the deity of Jesus Christ. That'll come in the following passage. So let's look at 10, through 10, 11 through 13. For the scripture says, now he's going to support what he said in uh, verses 9, actually 8 through 10. Remember, it's one long sentence starting in verse 8 after Paul introduces a question, then it's a long sentence. For the scripture says... And now he's going to take us, he's taken us to Isaiah 28, 13, all the way in chapter 9. He's taken us to Leviticus 14. Remember, he's addressing people that have a Jewish background, a Jewish audience, a Christian audience, preparing them to be able to present the gospel to their fellow unbelieving Jews. We focused a couple of weeks ago on chapter 10, 6 through 8, which comes from Deuteronomy 30, 12 through 14. And, uh, and now, verse 11, he goes back to Isaiah 28, 16. Remember, uh, we saw that in 9:33, And he's quoting it again, almost like uh, pulling all these passages together. You might, uh, linguists call that perhaps an inclusio. In other words, Everything in between kind of goes together. And I would include even beginning in verse 30. But anyway, at least 33, he requotes the Isaiah passage for the scripture says, and what does the scripture say? Whoever 
believes in him. Now, keep in mind, who's the audience here? And this would jump out. This would slap the Jew in the face. The Jew would say, what? Whoever? No, God has a chosen people. God has separated us. God gave us the law. God revealed himself to us. He has made us a holy nation. He has separated us. What is the law all about except separation, holiness, separating us from those dogs, from those Gentiles? And Paul, your gospel message, it can't be biblical. It can't go and extend on an equal basis to the the pagans of that day. So the whosoever begins to attack some of these problems that the Jews had. And let's focus on some of the problems. First of all, not only all of the Old Testament quotes that he's already quoted, but now he's going to take them to the Isaiah 28, 16. It's not Paul that says whosoever. It's Isaiah 28, 16. So how are you Jews going to handle that passage? This is what Isaiah says. This is what the Old Testament tells us, that God has extended his love to whoever or I think King James, whosoever believes. And again, he's stressing the idea of faith. So this kind of undermines the Jewish interpretation, you might say, or the Jewish understanding of their election. It doesn't remove Israel as the elect nation, but what the nation overlooked is God made them a special people and an elect nation. And what they missed is they thought, oh, God wants to bless us. And yes, God wants to bless them. But they're a chosen and select nation in order that they may be lights in the world, that they may be the avenue by which the world comes to know the one true holy God of the Old Testament. It's through this special nation that will be God's instrument. That's what Israel overlooked. They took their election self-centeredly and applied it to them as separate and exclusionary. Whereas Isaiah, and he's going to give us some other passages as well, and says, no, the intent of you being a select and elect nation is that you, in fact, would reach out to the Gentiles that whoever amongst the Gentiles would believe would, in fact, not be disappointed. So he's really getting right at the heart of the problem of Judaism, how this they have separated themselves as exclusionary rather than separating themselves to be lights and distinct from a dying and a corrupt world to be able to pull others out that whoever would believe. So this goes against everything that a Jew would think about when he thought about uh, God's choosing of of the people of Israel. And they're not going to be disappointed. So no disappointment. The idea uh, in some New Testament context and Old Testament context, it has the idea of put to shame. The idea of our sin puts us to shame. And 
believing in him removes that shame. We will not be dis and we will not be disappointed in a broader sense as well. So we'll not be disappointed. And then verse 13, and this really gets at the heart of Judaism. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Put on your Jewish little hat there. You're a Jew and you're reading this and you have all of the Old Testament background and you've spent all of your life and all of your effort in uh, trying to maintain righteousness, holiness, separateness. Uh, you've celebrated feast days that separate you. You separate in terms of your Sabbath observance. You, uh, even when you visit a Gentile, you leave and you shake the dust off your feet. You're careful not to drink or to eat out of Gentile vessels. You've separated. And now you're saying, Paul, what? There's no difference? There's no distinction? What about all of the Old Testament? So this problem would, this would be a major problem to a Jewish audience, no distinction. What about all of the separateness, the whole idea? And you can go through the whole Old Testament, in fact, the whole Bible, starting with the concept of election and chosenness and Israel as a holy people. And by the way, any of you remember the site that I've got as a background slide there? Some of you should remember, right? reason I use that, I'm going to use a historical event that took place close to that very site that we visited when we were there both times. So a Jew would, uh, again, we've already talked about how they are chosen and separate, a holy people, a separate people, a distinct people. All of the passages that uh, not only overtly state that, we read some of them in Deuteronomy, the whole law separated Israel. They did, they ate differently, they dressed differently, they lived differently. The law specifies a lifestyle of separateness and distinctness, all of that. You could look at the life of Jonah or the book of Jonah. The main reason that Jonah didn't want to go to the Assyrians, God, he's a prophet. God's sending him to, to a group, whosoever. He's sending them to an whosoever group. And Jonah, knowing the Assyrians, those are pagans. Those are persecutors. They, they will impale Jewish people. They will invade the land. I know you're a gracious God. I don't want to go give them the gospel message, Jonah, the whole message there. In fact, at the end, chapter 4, what does Jonah do? He's, he's whining that God has, in fact, intervened to avert the judgment that Jonah was going to bring the message to the Assyrians. Here you have an entire city, and this was a great city. Uh, we know archaeologically as well, Nineveh, and also just from the biblical text, three days journey to cross the city, three days to walk across it, huge. Hundreds of thousands of people live there. The whole city turns. <laughs> Massive revival. Jo Jonah is disappointed because of this concept of separateness. We don't want to share this blessing with these pagans that are bent on destroying us. So in the first century, it was, un it was not uncommon. And even before, I already alluded to, you enter Gentile lands, you cleanse yourself on leaving and you shake the dust off. You don't eat out of Gentile vessels. You are separate, you are different. 
If we had more time, we could look at Acts 8, 1, 1 and 2. God has to bring persecution to separate the primarily Jewish church in, Jer in Jerusalem in order to bring the gospel message to Judea and Samaria. Do you remember? We have kind of the beginnings of that in chapter 8, 1 and 2. The church had to be awakened. It was predominantly Jewish, a Jewish church that God intended them to reach out to the Gentiles. And then the context of Acts chapter 10 takes place in Joppa. That's the background slide there. In fact, the prominent structure there, that's the uh, church of St. Peter in Joppa, just right on the edge of Tel Aviv there. It's in that context. If we have time, we could look at Acts 10 and uh, verse 5. It mentions Joppa. And if you keep reading, what takes place in the following passage? Do you remember? What, what does God need to do for Peter in order to prepare Peter to present the gospel to Cornelius, a Roman soldier? Anyone remember the context? Just to give him a vision has to give him a vivid vision three times. And what is the vision of? Unclean food. And Un he says, don't call it unclean, take and eat. Yeah, unclean food. In other words, this is a picture that God has made all things clean now. In other words, the death of Christ dealt with sin, dealt with this, this uh, contamination, you might even say. So Peter needs to see that vision three times and assimilate it and eat. In other words, participate in it to prepare him to now to go into the house of uh, the Gentiles and bring the gospel message to them. That was the intent of the whole Old Testament. And even Paul himself, the non-believing Jews, if we looked at Acts 21, 27 through 28, that vividly illustrates the Jewish attitude towards Paul. Even though he was Jewish, he was unclean and he was contaminated because he had contact with Gentiles. So verse 12, there's not only no distinction, but he goes on for the same Yahweh. When you see Lord in a Jewish context, what a Jew would recognize from that, even the Greek word, kurios, is Yahweh of the Old Testament. Yahweh, the same Yahweh of the Old Testament is Yahweh of all. Remember, we already looked at that in verse 9. Believing in Jesus as Yahweh, believing him as Lord. This Yahweh of the Old Testament, and again, this would go against the... Uh, the thinking of a Jew, Lord of all, Lord of Gentiles, all, there's no distinction. What kind of gospel is this? Lord of all, Yahweh. Jews would have problems with all these things. That's why Paul is bringing them out because this is what they need to become aware of. And he's using the Old Testament. And then at the end, he will prove his point using the Old Testament. And this Yahweh is abounding in riches. Now, every Jew would agree with that. They would see the blessing and the riches of Yahweh in the Old Testament, how he is continually blessed and 
given uh, blessings to the nation of Israel, but now he's abounding in riches for all and who all who call upon him. So those that respond to this gospel message of Paul, and since there's no distinction, it includes the Greek or it includes the, uh, the Gentiles. So the Jew would, when he saw this, this abounding in riches, the blessings for all, he would be reminded, no, 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 it's the covenants. The covenants are to Israel. Paul would agree. But those covenants are intended, particularly the Abrahamic covenant, for the Jews to bless all, to bless the nations, blessings for all. You see the Jewish flavor of the whole passage as he continues to develop that. And then in verse 13, he goes back and quotes another whoever passage. It's not only Isaiah that speaks of whoever in the Old Testament, but we also have a whoever. And we saw in verse 11, the whoever. And now we have a Joel 2 passage, Joel 2, 32. And if we studied the context, and we're running out of time here, but the Joel passage is in a tribulation context. It's in a context of discipline on the nation of Israel preceding the coming of Messiah. In Paul's thinking, Israel has rejected Isaiah 53. And by the way, he's going to quote Isaiah 53 later on in the same chapter, chapter 10. So he, he has seen that Israel has rejected the Messiah. So what comes next after rejection of Messiah? There must be discipline of the nation. And Joel says that when uh, you call upon the name of the Lord in the midst of tribulation, then the coming of Messiah will occur. And in the New Testament, the return in fact, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus tells Israel that he will not return until they call upon his name. So he takes Joel and focuses again on the whoever, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord. And what does he say there? So he's talking about Israel in the tribulation. The Lord will, calls on the name of the Lord will be there's the word again. What have we been saying about this word? And particularly in Joel. How is the word used in Joel? It's not used of uh, deliverance from hell. It's not even used in uh, the sense of uh, deliverance on an ongoing basis. The Joel passage is referring to deliverance from the, the wrath of God that is upon the nation of Israel, and to call upon the name of the Lord for total salvation. That's what Paul is getting at in this passage. So Israel has failed to accept the, what I'm, I'm using P's here, alliteration, accept the plentitude of God's plan that includes the Jew and the Gentile and particularly includes the Gentile and extends. This is an Old Testament concept. This is a true Jewish concept, not just something that Paul's gospel preaches. 
But the whoever comes from Isaiah. The whoever comes from Joel. You got that? And to bring it home, you and I are called to offer salvation in all of its aspects, starting with the initial aspect, to whosoever, whether it be Jew in our culture or Gentile, or whether it be terrorists or people that we have a hard time associating with, we are called to offer the gospel. Just as Israel was intended, they were called, they were elect, but it was in order that uh, they be lights, so also in our culture. Any comments? I kind of dominated today. Sorry about that. Could you go back to the Jewish problem slide? I just didn't get number seven on that. That's Joel 2, 32, Israel in tribulation. That's the context of the Joel 2, 32 passage. And what Paul is doing is, is he's bringing it into the first century and basically applying the Joel 2. He's, he's telling his audience in the first century, Israel is in the Joel 2 situation. They, they will face tribulation. What Paul is unaware of is there'll be 2,000 years before that tribulation comes, but there is going to be a tribulation in 70 AD that Paul may not be aware of. Thank you. You're welcome. Any other comments or questions? Yeah, Ray, I have a question. Go ahead, on, Pat. On point number four, where it has um, uh, Yahweh. Yes. Is that coming from verse 12? Uh, it says, for there is no difference between the Jew and Greek for the same Lord overall is rich unto all that call upon him. Mm-hmm. And so, Lord, I have that as um, kurios. Yes. Is uh, Lord, Master. So is that uh, Yahweh? Well, to a Jew, and particularly in the Joel passage, when you call on, you remember we've talked a lot about the name of the Lord. I didn't bring that out. I should have. I ran out of time. But what does the name of the Lord represent here? Or the name of God? Okay. It's the totality of who God is. And the Joel passage, in fact, this passage equates Yahweh of Joel chapter 2 with Jesus Christ. That is the focus of this passage. Remember in verse 9, you have Jesus as Lord. You have Lord consistent through that. That's why I've been bringing it out. To a Jewish mind, kurios, the word kurios, and particularly out of Joel, is referring to Yahweh of the Old Testament. Okay. Make sense? All right. That's why context is so important. Any other comments or questions? Pat, since your mic was and may not be, uh, do you want to close for us today? Sure. Father, we thank you for your word today. Thank you for the uh, just a reminder of and detail about your word that uh, we need to be Bereans and to to see what you are truly saying to each one of us. I thank you, Lord, for this opportunity that we can share in this venue, being apart from one another. I ask, Lord, that as each of us go our way, we uh, would take what we've learned and we uh, we share it, Lord. And uh, that we can we can also fellowship with one another, uh, just as Mary Lee spoke, new ways, new 
opportunities to fellowship with one another. And I pray that we would maintain our hope, our joy in the Lord, um, that how we as believers uh, will speak to others uh, by the way we live. Um, I pray, Lord, as we go our way, everyone who is uh, away and in their own circle of influence, Lord, you protect them, guide them, and uh, keep them in your care. And please give, give each one peace, Father. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Ray? Yes, sir. Excuse me. Uh, may I ask you, just I want to make sure I understood something that you said. Sure. Uh, so did you say that the that the whoever calls are really, it applies to Jew or Gentile in the tri- tribulation? Well, it applies, I think, broader than just the tribulation. I think, for example, the Isaiah passage where he uses, where Paul is uh speaking of uh, is more of a general, in other words, at any time, whoever. And I think that's the heart of God, even in the Old Testament. And you have examples of people coming like Rahab and others in the Old Testament. Rahab is a whosoever. There's others in the Old Testament. And I think that was God's intent that they be a light to bring whoever. So in any context, and, and Paul is applying it in the first century to the Jewish audience of the book of, of Romans. Well, not just Jewish, but primarily. So did you narrow the Joel passage down to the tribulation? I think that's the context of the Joel passage, though. Okay, and it's Isaiah what again? Twenty-eight sixteen. Any other major things? What I'm going to do this morning, we're going to have testimony by somebody or at least an introduction and this is for mainly some of the new people that are not familiar with us and I'm going to ask some of you uh, people that have been with us for a while I didn't want to use the word older people might insult you but some of you that have been with us a while also to kind of join in so the new people get to know you as well so and uh, this morning I asked Wanda and Amy to introduce themselves. They're kind of, uh, well, Amy's kind of in between in that she has joined us, but many of you know her, especially those of you that went on the Israel trip. Amy Kettleson and Wanda, her mother, they're going to share today. So I'm going to just basically, uh, you guys ready, Amy, to you and your mom introduce yourselves? Go ahead, Amy. Introduce yourself. Tell us a little about yourself. Your mom, uh, share a little bit. Just go ahead, Amy. Um, hi, I'm Amy Kettleson. Um, I live in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I'm, so you just kind of want me to tell about myself, Ray? Is that yeah, right? Yeah, just so people get to know who you are. I mean, they'll, they'll see your okay. name on the list. Um, I'm a paramedic in Albuquerque. And I was in the 911 system for 25 years, um, first firefighter and now paramedic. And due to injuries, I'm unable to do heavy lifting anymore. So I um, actually quit with the ambulance last year and joined Blue Cross Blue Shield and I run their community paramedic program. So that's what I'm doing right now. Um, I've been born again since I was three and um I live with my mom. My mom and I live together. Um, what else? <laughs> Hobbies? <laughs> Do 
you want hobbies, Ray? <laughs> sure, why not? Um, what church are you in? Well, I grew up in, I've been going to Grace Church, um, but I don't know. Right now, I'm kind of in between churches, so um, I'm glad to be able to access Ray's class. That's been likes, good. You like stamps. Yes, and um, <laughs> hi, David. Um, <laughs> and hot air ballooning. I do a lot of yes. hot air ballooning. So and um, I'm, you know, anything outdoors, camping, hiking, fishing, that kind of a thing. Israel. Single. Israel. <laughs> yeah. Love to travel. Israel. Been to all 50 states in the U.S. Pray um, for a husband for her. <laughs> Mom, shush. <laughs> Uh, what else? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's another thing. We're, we'll move into prayer time. So if you got a prayer request, uh, besides what your mom suggested. <laughs> um, no, not specifically. Um, I, I did have COVID in April, but I don't seem to have any lasting effects. So that's good. Okay. Your mom? I'll let her go next. I'll turn off. Oh, don't put me do you want your video? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I worked for UNM for 19 years and was laid off, which was the, one of the worst things in my life. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I'm retired from there now since 2007. Um, I'm from uh, Salem, Virginia. <clears throat> where my two sisters still live and all my relatives. I just found out yesterday that my cousin has COVID. Um, so I don't know how he's uh, faring. He's in Virginia. Hmm. Um, my husband and son passed away. Uh, my husband, 19, well, no, 91, however long that's been. Wow. My son in Twitter. Uh, 2016. Um, that's one of the reasons I think I live with my daughter. Um, and did you become a believer at age three as well? No, not me. <laughs> I had just become a Christian before Amy. I was in my 30s and um, my husband was still alive then. And Jehovah Witnesses used to come to our house and tried to convert me. And um, I had a, a vision that I, this is hard, <laughs> that I um, was in like a, a tunnel and I could um, see the top of the tunnel and there was a great light. And um, it was shortly after that that the church that we had been going to um, before Amy was born, uh, the pastor had retired and an interim pastor um, had come and he came, he and his wife came to our house and evidently he's the only one who's ever prayed for me because I feel that you have to pray for a person to uh, come to the Lord. But he was talking to us uh, <clears throat> about the scriptures and my husband asked him, why did Jesus have to die? And he gave scripture for it. And the Lord just opened my eyes right then and there. And so um, 
I had had a great experience, um, if you want to call it that. Um, I was so excited, and I felt, you know, I could read the Bible and understand it from that day on and got into real good uh, Bible study with some people from that church. And I just, I was so excited. I wanted to get on the rooftop and shout it to the whole world. Wow. That uh, Jesus was my Lord. And um, my husband didn't come till, I don't know, years later, he went to another church. We got separated because he was an alcoholic. And, um, and as far as Amy, she doesn't remember it at three years old. And um, we had come from Grace Church then, I think it was, or First Baptist. No, it was Grace Church. And I remember exactly where I was. I was outside my son's uh, bedroom, and I asked her how was Sunday school, and she said, she told me, and I led her to the Lord right there. And it's like I could see the Holy Spirit um, and coming to her because her eyes lit up, and she just became so excited. I'm surprised she doesn't remember that. Huh. But um, through the years, I I have come down with macular, hmm. and yeah. I have been getting eye injections for two or three years now. I decided the other day I'm never having another one. They're horrible. Um, I was kind of sick for a while with uh, COVID, we think, but I didn't. I didn't. Uh, test uh, positive for the antibodies, which Amy did. So I'm not sure how, if they don't, you know, stay in your blood that long, the antibodies. So that's about it. Okay. (laughs) Although when I came to the Lord, um, because I think the Jehovah Witnesses had been witnessing to me for a week after I came to the Lord, uh, Satan just attacked me wow. and made me think that I was losing my mind. And I would call that pastor's wife. And it was it was horrible the first week or so. Hmm. So, and my sister, I, um, she and her husband, I prayed for them and they came to the Lord. And she just lost her husband the same time that I lost my son. Hmm. She needs prayer. And my younger sister, she won't even talk about religion or politics. Yeah. So she needs prayer for salvation. Okay. So those are your prayer for your sister. Your sister. Great. Well, thank you, Amy and Wanda. That was good. And I hope uh, it encouraged some of you new people that uh, were not familiar with Amy and some of the old people that are familiar with Amy. I learned a few things about her that I didn't know. So thank you again. The plan is to do this next few weeks or, I don't know, as long as we meet, I guess. So be prepared uh, to give a little bit of a introduction like you did there, like Amy and Wanda did, and, and also to help us to get to know you. Well... Hope you all have a good week. Any last goodbyes? Thanks so much. Goodbye. Thanks, Rachel. Well, Peter's in it too. <laughs> and by the way, you were on. So they heard you. <laughs> See you later, Ray. See you again. In context, See you all. Does last goodbye mean final? <laughs> <laughs>
Context, context. For six more days. Goodbye for six days. See you later, alligator. Hey, everyone. <laughs> See y'all. After a while, talk with Kyle. Bye, guys. Thank you. Bye, Bye everyone.